it is enjoyable to be with you. What a breakfast. If you weren't here for breakfast, you need to come a little earlier. Wow. Thank you. We have such a privilege that we go back with the relationship with uh, Miller Valley Baptist Church quite a few years. I think something like, wow, almost 50 years or so. And uh, love God's grace that has been manifest here. Especially we have this wonderful relationship of the Reformed Baptist Network. And certainly uh, your pastor, Chris Marley, is a junior? No, it's just number two. All right. <laughs> Has had a real impact, I think, in different ways in the network and very thankful for all those that work with the details of things. I usually, when I've been on the committee of some kind or another, uh, all the details, I just feel like, oh, this goes on, and I'm thankful for those who take care of the details. They're important, but I don't enjoy them. I know that's important. One of the things, though, they have done that is very beautiful is this Reformed Baptist Network brochure. And on the front of this, it has glorifying God. Our very purpose is glorifying God through fellowship and cooperation, fulfilling the Great Commission to the ends of the earth. And so I'd like to just uh, focus on this wonderful working together that we have of the Great Commission, and it's that which culminates the Gospel of Matthew. It's that which culminates the very ministry of Christ. The Great Commission comes to us as churches, and we cooperate and work together to send the gospel to the ends of the earth. So this morning I have chosen as a title in the passage of scripture is one in which you maybe uh, to hear the title and maybe that's why they didn't put it in the bulletin was because maybe if you saw the title beforehand you wouldn't come. It's the great commission, our great commission to afflictions. Kind of a strange title for people to come and hear. But there's a sense in which we have a great commission to afflictions. As God's people, we are given something of great importance. And so as we come together this morning, it is my desire that we would have something of a sense of what we have here in, first, in Colossians, the first chapter, when Paul says in verse 24, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Let's pray together. Father, we do bow in your presence and ask, O oh Lord, that your Holy Spirit would give us something of the sense of what our commission is to afflictions and what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ and that we would be as a church, as those working together to fill up what is lacking in those afflictions. Help us to have understanding. Give us illumination by your Holy Spirit in such a way that it's not just merely we're here today, but, oh God, that touch our hearts, our prayer, 
Strike our hearts, O Lord, that we would love you more. Strike our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The city of Colossae, kind of an interesting city from the standpoint of looking back into history. I mean, to think this is a city, it's a church there in that city. It's a city church 2,000 years ago. And in the year 60 AD, there was an earthquake that flattened it all. They did rebuild, but by the time of 400 AD, it didn't even exist except for rubble. So we're looking at a verse of scripture, a passage of a letter that was written 2,000 years ago to a city church in a city that doesn't even exist anymore. So there's a sense in which you have to kind of ask the question, why in the world would we be looking at one verse of 95 verses of a letter written 2,000 years ago, and that whole thing was destroyed by an earthquake and not anything but rubbles left, a city church long ago. But if you look on the first words of this letter, it opens up with these words, Paul, an apostle. That is, a sent one, a one authorized by Christ Jesus. By the will of God. And so when you have that expression, there's an importance here that I think we need to have impressed upon us. What we have here is something that is given by God, given by the Lord Jesus Christ, given by the one who is the word of God. As you remember that opening of John's gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he is the word, the revelation of God. He is the fullness of that revelation of God. He is what is given to us as the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end of God's revelation to us as those who need to know who God is. He is the revelation, the fullness of that revelation of what he is, who he is, and what he has done. He is the complete revelation. It all comes to the culmination in Jesus Christ. And this uh, letter really is that which speaks of that so plainly as 2,000 years ago, and yet this letter is for us today. The people of that day were seeking something more than Christ, something that would really satisfy, something, yes, more than Christ. As you read through the letter, it has all these fascinating things about a goddess of fertility and these different cults and worship of angels and, and uh, philosophies, the Greeks with their background that was back behind all of these philosophies and things and religions and carefulness with diets and observance of days and something more than Christ. Something just, oh, if we could just have whatever it may be. And we have something of that feeling in our own lives, not just America at large and the world at large, but we all have that, oh, if I could just have this, the raise in the job, a few more good jobs, something else, uh, my kids would just be what they should be. We'd, I'd be happy that if I could just have something more, more 
But when we really come down to it, Paul has proclaimed in chapter 1 of Colossians that there isn't something more. Christ is the complete. He is the all. He's the all in all. He is the one who is the very image of the invisible God, the creator of all things in heaven and on earth. He is the one for whom all things were created, and he is the one who created all things. You can't be more than Christ. He is the fullness of it all. He is, as Colossians 1.16 has these words so beautifully to us when we read, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. More than him ain't. He's it, the fullness, the beauty of it all. There's a joy. He is the all in all. The reality of it is that Paul proclaims, proclaims a complete Christ. Jesus Christ is that fullness of all. And he is complete. Our standing with God is in him complete. So when we come to verse 24, there's kind of a something I think that seems strange or shocking. How is this that it says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church. So what I want us to do is to realize that we need to understand scripture in the light of scripture. That is the most important, the ultimate hermeneutic of the Bible is we see light in light. We need the whole of Christ, the whole of Scripture, to order to understand God's revelation given to us. So as we come to this, what I would like for us to do is to understand, first of all, the sufferings of Christ and his propitiation. Big word, we'll talk about it a little bit. Propitiation. It's in your Bibles, if you use what we've kind of come to have as the new authorized translation for Reformed churches, the English Standard Version, uses this big word, propitiation. Good word, if we understand what it means. Secondly, we want to look, though, at what these afflictions are about, this here that Paul's talking about, that has to do with the sufferings of Christ and the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then just a couple questions at the end if we get there the purpose of it all so looking at this great thing of the sufferings of Christ and his propitiation we've already had in chapter 1 how there's reconciliation through what through the blood of Christ on the cross there really was this amazing thing that took place remember Paul is in prison He's writing a letter to Onesimus. Yes, I'm sorry. He's, he's ready to send Onesimus to Philemon. 
uh, and this, this whole thing is taking place as he's writing also this letter to the Colossians, and all this is taking place with a context of that world that he lived in, of slavery and, and all that's going on. So very important, this great hermeneutic that we have, the sufferings of Christ and what we call propitiation, the cross of Christ. Verses 21 through 23, we read, Once we were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Now, we have this element of the completeness of our standing with God. There is a sense in which whether we go to the book of Romans and we read how all the world stands guilty before God, chapters 1 and 2, whether you're a Gentile or, or a Jew, all stand guilty before God. And there's but this wonderful thing that God has set forth Christ as a propitiation, that is, as one who turns away the wrath of God propitiation. Now that word is very important in one sense in that the meaning of God's wrath is very real. There needs to be a propitiation, an appeasing of God's wrath. The liberals, they said, oh, in fact, kind of agreeing with that Greek philosophy, it's something wrong for God to have wrath, to God to have anger over sin. And so they came with that element, God is a God who is just loving and giving us this wonderful example in the cross. And so therefore, they got rid of that word propitiation or whatever translation you might have of that word propitiation. And they were putting there just that he just gives us this wonderful example in that sense now, propitiation is important. There's a sense in which when we understand what it means and have a definition of what it is, it's helpful. Now, maybe if I ask how many of you feel like you could stand up and say propitiation means such and such, might be a few who would be hesitant to say exactly because it's not one of our words we have in our vocabulary. But propitiation has to do with turning away that wrath of God expiation has to do with covering over our sins. And so in the New Testament at times we have this word that's translated propitiation in Romans 3. Sometimes it's translated as the mercy seat. Hebrews 9, I think it's 9.5 where it speaks of how it's the very mercy seat, that, that place where God was to meet with his people that place where he was to cover their sins. They had broken his law, and there was a covering of their sins. Expiation. There was that doing away with their sin. You can expiate sin, but you can only propitiate God and his wrath. The two really can't be separated. There's a sense in which without covering our sins, God can't be pleased with us. His wrath can't be turned away unless our sins are expiated. He can't be propitiated unless 
Our sins have been expiated. So there's a sense in which they come together. Those two concepts. Sin is expiated. The guilt is gone. And therefore God is propitiated. You can't really separate those two. They are together in what Christ has done for us in his life and on the cross. Now, what did Jesus do? He, in a wonderful way, brings that sense of, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And at the same time, with that taking away our sin in a beautiful sense, he turns away God's wrath. We stand before him, not with some kind of hope that we could do something more to, to have God's wrath turned away from us. No, there is therefore now no, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God's wrath has been satisfied. Our sins have been covered. If you're in Christ Jesus, it's done. The work of redemption is done. I remember uh, vividly, in fact, I was writing not too long ago with one of my grandsons who just graduated from Baylor University and we had gone back for the graduation and while I was riding in his car with one of those grandsons, he said, Papa Grizz, he says, do you remember when you preached our baptism service, the title you put on that sermon? And I was trying to remember and he says the title of that sermon was Golasso. Now, that sounds strange to you, but to these Latin American grandsons of mine, they are very much involved in what we call football. It's called soccer here. And a Golasso is that winning goal. It's done. When you come to the end of that psalm of Christ on the cross and all that's involved with it, it ends with as it's even been translated into the Septuagint and into the Greek, it ends with the same word that's used on the cross when Jesus says to tell us die. It is finished. It's done. Psalm 22 says he has done it. The Golasso. He's finished it. It's done. Sin is covered. God's wrath is turned away. Golasso. Hallelujah. No more suffering of Christ. His work as a priest here on this earth is done. He intercedes for us at the Father's right hand as our priest, yes. But his work of taking care of our sins and turning away the wrath of God is done. No more suffering. No more affliction. Nothing more could possibly be done. So what do we have here? When it says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Now, the suffering of Christ. I believe as we look at the whole of the passage and the whole of scripture, it has to do with that affliction that accompanies the proclamation of the gospel, of taking the gospel to all the nations and yes, to your neighbors here in Cowboy Prescott. B. 
being involved with maybe four-wheel drive kind of guys, being involved with pickup trucks that are a certain kind, being involved with Prescott and what its culture and history is, and taking the gospel to where those people are. Today, right now, we, you, have something that no one else has with an identity and being part of these people here to take the gospel to them. At the same time, it will cost you. Your relationship with some of those people will change as you love them with the gospel. It is the great commission. The gospel is free grace from beginning to end, but it costs to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It costs to take them to your next door neighbor. It costs. Paul's conversion, I believe, points us to what that suffering is all about. Romans chapter Romans chapter 9. I love Romans chapter 9. Maybe I need to Acts chapter 9. When the apostle Paul Saul is breathing out threatenings of murder and all that's involved with that and he is there on the road to Damascus. You remember the passage Acts chapter 9 and he cries out, "Who are you, Lord?" If you look at Acts 9 Verse 16, turn there in your Bibles. Good to see this with your own eyes. Acts 9, 16. I believe has these words upon us, how he's a chosen instrument to carry my name, Jesus is saying, before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him what? How much he must suffer for my name in fulfilling the Great Commission to take the gospel to the Gentile world and to the Jews, to the kings, to all that he was ordained to do. There was a commission, a great commission he was given that had to do with afflictions, suffering. You read something of the life of the Apostle Paul, you'll realize that it had to do with great tribulation. In a wonderful way, he is part of that great history of the church down through the ages of great tribulation, of taking the gospel to all the different nations, all the different languages, all the different ethnic peoples, yes, even to the ends of the earth. All the 144,000 that represent all the people of God who come to Christ, who are the elect of God, all from the Old Testament times to the New Testament times to the end of the age, all of them are to be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to reach them, it is costly. It is affliction. It is the great commission to afflictions. That the Apostle Paul was part of that. Is it something for our day? Is that great commission for us? Yes. Those last days began with the coming of Christ as Hebrews 1, 1 speaks of how in these last days Christ has spoken to us. There is that last day that began. It's the last days until he comes again in power and glory. And in this last day will continue until he does come again in power and glory. The last days of Matthew 24. Turn there to Matthew 24. 
and just read some of this with me as you would hear these words. Matthew 24, verse 9, we read, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. This is speaking of that great tribulation that the church and taking the gospel to all the nations of the earth were involved in. We're part of those afflictions. We suffer with union with Christ to see his gospel go to all these peoples. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people because of the increase of wickedness. The love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. No matter what we suffer, no matter what afflictions, no matter what takes place, it is well with my soul. Whatever my failures, whatever our afflictions, whatever all this is, Jesus Christ has conquered and he sends us forth. It's glorious. It's good news. Hey, guys, all of you, it's, it's, it's real. Eternity is real. So as we come to this, we need to realize that afflictions are real today. When Paul recounts all the afflictions, the sufferings, the shipwreck, the being in the open sea, all the persecution, all the different things, he says, I can't even count the number of times I've been beaten. It's almost like we're all pygmies, isn't it? We, we, we suffer a little something and we're, wow, look what's happened to me. And yet it's a privilege to be involved with taking the gospel to others. I'm not speaking of being obnoxious. I'm talking about boldness with wisdom. I'm not talking about a bullhorn at your neighbor's house and yelling the gospel, three, John 3.16, so he calls the police or something, and you say, look, I'm being persecuted. No, I'm talking about wisdom. Taking the gospel with love and compassion to real people in their lives that are every day. 2 Timothy 3.12 speaks of how all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Not for our, it's not persecution for our right standing with God. We stand right with God in the propitiation, in the expiation of Christ, his afflictions for us in our place. But there is a sense in which we will live godly lives. We who do that, if we are right with God, we will do that. And then we will suffer persecution. This Jesus movement impacted the world. And we're part of that heritage. As Christ's atonement, his life and sufferings really are sufficient. I love the old statement. I can't even remember where 
where it is in Matthew Henry, but when I was about 17, a, a dear friend came back from Scotland and he brought six old volumes from the, I think, early part of the 19th century of Matthew Henry, and it had small print. I didn't even realize you could buy them new somewhere, but I treasured those volumes all these years. And somewhere I remember reading that Christ's death on the cross is sufficient to save as many worlds of sinners as there are sinners in the world. What he has done is sufficient. But we have the privilege of yet in union with Christ to suffer afflictions in taking the gospel to others. We must come to him if we are to have any blessing, any eternal blessing from what he has done for sinners. We must come to him and be in union with him. But if we are in union with him, we are to be those who obey the Great Commission. And doing that, we will have the privilege of suffering afflictions. As a church, it will take place. As individuals, as families, it will take place. But it's a joy. This strange thing that Paul says, now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I will fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. It's an amazing thing to think we are in union with him. How long will it last? Revelation chapter 6, maybe you remember those souls under the altar, they asked that question, how long, O Lord? And it will be until the last of those who are martyrs, last of those who are witnesses for Christ, until the last one of those has given that testimony. Is God late in coming? We know that passage, I think, of 2 Peter chapter 3. It speaks of he is not, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And there is a beauty to that. It's not that somehow or another God's calendar, his prophetic calendar, has stopped. No, each day is marked off with the blood, with the lifeblood of all those witnesses down through the ages. And that gospel's going out. It's powerful. And it goes forth. The days of God's calendar really are marked off one by one with the blood of those who are his witnesses. We are those special people. Just for a moment, focus with me on the purpose of all of this. I remember a hymn, I think we still sing it, a hymn about the purpose of the gospel for my own life as a teenager, certainly I remember that hymn, A Soldier of Christ, and uh, something about being willing to fill up, I think, what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. The hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross, a Follower of the Lamb, and shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Again, that boldness that's needed with wisdom or as the hymn goes, 
Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sail through bloody seas? Is it not for us as a church? And I do believe Miller Valley Baptist Church has been put through some pretty difficult days in the history that I know of. And I believe this is a church that's come out true through the fire. There's been some real gold that's pure and right and good. And God is to do a great thing, I believe, through this congregation. I believe that. He's purified you with a purpose. Not to just be a nice church with nicer buildings than someone else and nice, nice, nice families, but to be in the battle. Yes, there's a sense which we have that word from the Apostle Paul, endure hardship with us like a good soldier. Are there no foes for us to fight? Yes, there are. That we would stand and be in the battle. We have a, a sense, I think, that we have almost, uh, what should I say, uh, we can get very enthusiastic and we can get very, very passionate about uh, some of our sports and things of, of uh, basketball or football, American football, or, or uh, all these different things. I, I, st I have a memory comes to my mind right now of, of being in uh, Los Angeles uh, on the way to Brazil, and this is 1988, and it comes very clear to me. I was there, and how these people, the whole place was just right there watching this television World Series. It was really just, uh, I mean, the whole airport, it seemed like everybody was glued to these, this television, and this guy named Kurt Gibson limps up to the plate, and it's like he, he was in such bad shape he couldn't play in the field, and some of you maybe would know enough about baseball. In some extraordinary way, he hits this home run and, of course, makes the Dodgers from then on, they win the World Series. But before that, there was something, I think, that he was willing to sacrifice whatever it was to be world champions. And I think we need to have a bit of that element in us that's super more than that. That we would be willing to sacrifice whatever it may be to see our children come to faith in Christ. To see our neighbors know the Lord. To send the gospel to some, yes, ends of the earth. It's worth doing the sacrifice much more than the World Series. Final question. What are we living for? If you go through that passage that goes on from verse 24... It has all these amazing things about how the maturity of the church, that he's giving the gospel to the church, that everyone would become mature, that he's all these different things and, and how the proclamation is to go forth. Are we seeing things in the light of eternity? I have an old volume, Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's one of those grand old, uh, I think the end of the 18th century uh, editions with all these uh, engravings all through it of, of martyrs being burned at the stake and, and all that's involved with the history of, of the, the gospel. That is the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Those 
witnesses, martyrs, those who gave their lives, their, the seed of the church, and that's crazy, isn't it? I mean, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, killing them, and, and the church grows. It's amazing grace is what it is. In the front of that volume, I took it down just because of reading in relation to this very message, just thinking through all those who suffered down through these many ages. And I find on the front page a dedication to me, my best friend, Chuck Klotz, who's with the Lord now. Um, he writes something very, very kind. And then at the end, he has those words, to my friend throughout eternity. And we need that sense of eternity for our daily lives, our friendships, our families, what we're living for. It's more than, oh, if I could just get that straightened out, if we could get the house paid for, if we could get something bigger, if we could do something more. No, Christ is all in all. It's his amazing grace that gives us right standing with God and really what is eternal is the reality of all things. Let's pray. Father, at times our prayers are, yes, we are praying for life to be smooth, for life to be well, to all things to be nice, and that you'd get us through the difficult moments and everything would be nice. And yet, Lord, we find ourselves so sure of what is good and happy and forget sometimes the greatest and sweetest things are when we have the privilege of suffering afflictions for your name's sake. Help us, O oh Lord, to know what it is to experience those amazing things and to know that your plan includes afflictions for the proclamation of the gospel to the nations. Help us, O oh Lord, strike our hearts. Deliver us, O oh Lord, from just feeding on things that pass away. Strike us with hunger of those things so that we would hunger for those things which are eternal. I thank you for Miller Valley Baptist Church and its leadership and its members and how you've blessed it as a church through thick and thin, through joyful times and times of mourning that you have been their God and that you've been with us always and that you've promised I will be with you always even to the end of the age. And Lord, that is our prayer. Touch all of our hearts afresh. Strike our hearts that we would love you more. We thank you for these moments together and ask, Lord, that you would Give us a sense of being in the battle, a sense of eternity. In Jesus' name we pray.